You are listening to a message from Thrive Community Church, a church located in Southwest Florida. For more info, visit us at thrive-fl.org. Anyone who has lived a life as a follower of Jesus, who has been called by Jesus, and there have been many who have sacrificed and given them themselves, I, I think we all realize we wouldn't be here as Christians, followers of Jesus, if it wasn't for the generations before us, all the way back to Jesus. There's an unbroken chain of sharing the gospel message. And so we'll also, this Memorial Day, remember those, okay? And of course, uh, our hearts grieve today as well with Uvalde, Texas, um, another school shooting. Um, with the people of Ukraine. There's so many things in this world right now that we need to lift up in prayer. Why don't we do that now and then we'll do it again, okay? (laughs) After saying all that, it's like, gosh, I think I need to pray. Lord God, um, thank you for this weekend. And as we celebrate or remember or commemorate Memorial Day, Lord, here in our country, a day where we reflect on those who have gone before, um, who have battled, who have fought for the freedoms and have lost their lives doing so, Lord. Uh, Help us to give proper honor and respect uh, to all those, to recall with sober judgment uh, the values that they lived for and they died for. We pray, Lord, as well, that at a time when our world is in such chaos, as well as, Lord, our country is facing very uh, difficult things, Lord, that you would give to us a spirit and a unity, Lord, of service, of humility, of care, of uh, unity, Lord, that seems to be evading us right now, that we are stronger together rather than individually just entitled. Lord God, we lift up to you, um, Uvalde, Texas, and all those families who mourn in our country mourns and grieves. We pray, Lord God, that you would bring an end to um, these mass shootings. We've had so many. We've become so numb. We just think this is commonplace, and it is not, Lord. We pray, Lord, that you would, you would bring your healing. We thank you for many who have already come to Uvalde and to serve and to listen and to give therapy and counsel and spiritual guidance and wisdom. We thank you, Lord, that we have seen testimony of your goodness in the lives of Christians within Uvalde and how they've come together. We pray, Lord, though, somehow, Lord, I don't know, We've asked so many times before that maybe this time we would come to do something, Lord, something of significance from going upstream of these situations to help, uh, to assist, to support uh, troubled youth, to what, uh, Lord, you know what all needs to happen much more than we do. We pray that you give to our leadership, Lord, the courage to do the right thing rather than just what's politically expedient, whatever that may be, Lord God. We fall at our feet, Lord, asking for this. 
We lift up Ukraine today too, Lord God. We know. Um, Oh, Lord, it has been over three months now, and um, we pray that there is an end to this, this, this war. And uh, the, the carnage, as well as the violence and the injustice, Lord, we pray for healing and protection. We pray for um, that we pray, Lord, that you would have your way, because we know your way is a way of peace, Lord Jesus. You are the king of peace. We know your way is not a way of violence. We know your way is a way of truth and justice, Lord. And we pray and we cry out for that. And we ask, Lord, that you'd help us to be with those who are refugees wherever they happen to be in this world and that we would come alongside of them and speak truth to power when needed, Lord. Lord, we lift up um, as well um, other issues in this world as uh, Colombia today undergoes an election. We pray that your will is accomplished, that wisdom prevails, that, Lord, you direct uh, your paths there as well. You are sovereign over all the nations, Lord. We want you to be sovereign over our nation as well. And uh, Lord, we lift up to you as well and thank you for the lives of many who have gone before us in the Christian faith. <laughs> From every tribe and hill and people and nation on earth, Lord, you have called people to be your very own. We give you thanks, Lord, for their witness. We give you thanks for their bravery. We give you thanks for their sacrifice that has given us, Lord, the ability to hear the gospel. And in this country, O oh Lord, that we are free to proclaim it, and we pray that you'd give us the courage ourselves to continue to proclaim and to continue to live for you in those ways. And as we read this text today and as we are in this service together, Lord, we pray um, you would be working through this time, that you'd be bringing healing to a number of people in our congregation, to Sue, to Jeff, to Vicki, Lord, and those outside of our congregation, but within our care and concern and our family, Lord, we lift up to you, Carol. We pray for you to be working your healing power through your gospel today and that you would bring your kingdom and your will to be done here on earth as it is in heaven. All this we pray in your name, dear Jesus. Amen. So we continue with Simply Jesus again, and we're in chapter 6 of Mark, where we get the story of Jesus coming back to his hometown and getting the cold shoulder. <laughs> Any of you ever go back, you know, after college or, I don't know, after a little bit of a career? I grew up in a small town, and... Um, not as small as Nazareth. Nazareth was probably three to 500 people. So that's pretty. So anybody from a small town that size? Wow. Where? Wisconsin. Granton? Granton, Wisconsin. Population? Okay. <laughs> Not quite population five. Was that hee-haw? What was it? Hee-haw had, I know. Uh, anyways, but we make a lot of fun of small towns sometimes, right? But 200, wow. Anyone else? 
No, that's a little small, isn't it? Mine was 3,000, so that's a metro area. About 5,000. Yeah, it's still small. <laughs> it's still small. But um, Nazareth, so you understand Nazareth. And you understand why maybe Jesus coming back to the small town would get kind of the reception he does. They say familiarity breeds contempt, but there's a little more going on here in this story. <clears throat> in fact, the word is that they took offense at him. And we'll look at what that means. Um, now, our overall reading today is pretty long, and you might go like, how does this, it all fits together with the idea of offense or, you know, <laughs> rejection or scandal, and how um, that was the natural reaction to the, the announcement of the kingdom of God, the ministry of Jesus, and the precursor to it, the ministry of John the Baptist. So we're going to read quite a bit. You can follow along in your um, Bible app. It's right there, all the notes for today. And um, as I mentioned before, we're going to have a uh, hangout tonight. We'd love to have you at that. That's the only announcement today. Happy Memorial Day. But let's go now with the reading, okay? <clears throat> so <clears throat> chapter 6. He went away. Oh, yes. He went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonishing. Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could not do a mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them, and he marveled. He marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching, and he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not to put on two tunics. And he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent, and they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said, he is Elijah. And others said, he's a prophet like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death, but she could not. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous man and a holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. But an opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, Ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. 
And he vowed to her, whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half of my kingdom. Some dance, huh? And she went out and said to her mother, for what should I ask? And she said, the head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. Wow. <laughs> Quite a reading for Memorial Day, huh? John is one of those saints who spoke truth to power. Look at what happened. <laughs> yeah, but still a model of courage. Um, you might not think they all logically follow, but it all fits into this idea of offense, of being offended. Simply put, Jesus is offensive. Did you ever think of that? Jesus is offensive. And so we're going to look under these three points today, the reality of his offensiveness, the reason for that, and the response to it. Okay, The reality, the reason, and the response. First of all, the reality. Now, the synagogue crowd in this small town of Nazareth, probably everybody, like Granton, Granton, right, Wisconsin, everybody showed up because Jesus, hey, he had been making the rounds. He had, he had, the rumors were spreading about him, so they all came to see what he was about. And it's not the fact that they just kind of disagreed with some of his words or they thought, well, you know. The Greek translation of the word is they offended him or he was offensive to them. And the Greek word is scandalizo. Do you hear scandal in that? It's right there. And it basically does mean to cause someone to stumble or to fall into a trap. And they stumbled over him. Now, I know there are a lot of well-intentioned Christians over the years. I've been one of them as well. We probably all have that want to kind of market Jesus or display Jesus to people so that he's cool or hip or happening or viral or popular. We kind of take some of the edges off and the nuances off of his ministry so that he's likable that he seems sensible, that he fits in, that people could say, oh, yes. I get why we kind of want to sell Jesus, because we want to reverse this trend that we're seeing in our society towards marginalization, you know, where we're becoming a minority status, and that we're kind of scared of that. Honestly, minority status has been the situation since the beginning. The entire ministry of Jesus shows in his own small town, he couldn't even whip up a crowd, right? Yeah. We're trying to take away the offense of Jesus. Now, I'll be honest. There are too many times Christians may offend other people, but not because of Jesus. That's a problem. I will give you that. Let me tell you I don't want to do that. We've got this preacher that comes on our campus at FGCU. Every college almost has one or two or three of these and is just totally offensive for the sake of being offensive. 
not because he's sharing Jesus, but he's just trying to get people to be, he's being provocative for the sake of trying to get someone to hit him, someone to retaliate and then sue him. It's really not about the gospel at all. There's not any gospel being shared by this guy. I've heard him, and I've tried to talk to him. You can give up on that. He's just going to yell at you, okay? Seriously. But the other thing is true, too. There's no such thing as an unoffensive Jesus. It's just not historically credible to come up with that, okay? Now, I grew up watching Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. It's a beautiful day in the neighborhood. Won't you be my neighbor? Yeah. And I'll tell you, Mr. Rogers was so nice. Who wouldn't want him as a neighbor, right? He's sweet. He's quiet. He's just everything that seems so accepting and wonderful and loving. Um, and I get what Mr. Rogers was trying to do. He was really appealing to children and their sensibilities. And by the way, most of you might know he was an ordained Presbyterian minister. So a lot of what he was doing, I, I agree with. But um, we often try to turn Jesus into Mr. Rogers. <laughs> and make Jesus just pleasant and gentle and empathetic, but that it just doesn't fit. I mean, those things are true, but there's so much more to Jesus. And I mean, here's the problem. Historically, we know what happened to Jesus. So you got to explain how in the world did that happen? I mean, who would kill Mr. Rogers? Just think about it. Right? And who would ever worship Mr. Rogers? And we know those two things are true of Jesus. Every historian realizes he ended up dead, and not just any kind of uh, uh, you know, death penalty upon him, but the most horrendous, the most shameful, the most humiliating kind of death you could ever have, a torturous death on a cross. It was the worst thing that could happen to anyone. Only criminals got that. Only the worst scum of society got that. So how in the world did that happen to Jesus? And historians also know that immediately after that crucifixion, whether they are believers or not, they know that the early church, these first century Jewish people who had no, re in fact, they had every obstacle to ever doing any honor or homage or prayer or any acknowledgement of a person having any connection to the divine that they started to worship this human being and pray to him as divine, totally against the entire history of the children of Israel. They had gone into exile over the whole idea of idolatry, and the last thing they would ever give is any honor or glory to anyone other than the one true God. And yet here, he gets crucified. He's totally rejected. And... He is worshipped. That's just amazing. Now, I mentioned a few weeks ago, it's worth repeating, and we see it again in this text. No one, and I mean no one, you can't find one person in the Gospels to ever respond to Jesus moderately. They didn't say he was nice. You know, you don't see an instance here in Nazareth where he comes into his hometown and some 
older lady comes up to him, gives him a tweak on the cheek and say, boy, how nice you've turned out. You're such a nice young man these days. I always knew that would happen. They didn't do that. They didn't throw him a welcome party. They didn't say he was interesting or helpful or good. He was threatening. And actually here, his whole family turns on him. He's a threat to the small town life as well as the big city life. It's amazing. Jesus is offensive. That's the reality. So you're going to have to struggle with that. Of Wait a minute. How can we have an offensive God? And yet we do. So why? We haven't really explained the reason why, right? And by the way, Jesus is offensive to all types. <laughs> he is a... Um, Equal opportunity offender. <laughs> he offends every culture, every class, every ethnicity, every center of identity. And we will see, you can find that in the gospel. It's the rich and the poor. It's the marginalized and the people in power. It's the Romans and the Jews. There is not like one class or one group of people, not one that isn't offended. That is something, is contra he contradicts them in some way. Because he is claiming something and doing something in the Gospels, in the Gospel of Mark as well. Only he is going to be Lord. You can't have another center to your life. You can't say, oh, uh, but my nation or my political ideology, ideology um, my philosophy, my way of life, my desires, my way I want to express, that's my center, that's my, no, he will not let anything else or anyone else be the center of your identity but him alone. He will uh, uh, violate any, any rule you put up to control your life the way you want, any, because he demands to be Lord. But in this instance, it's fascinating the way this comes across. And I think this also bears in mind the way we can be offended at the gospel and at Jesus. So this is what Mark 6, 2 to 3 says. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many who heard him were astonished, saying, where did this man get these things? So it's like they don't believe that he could think this way or have this. Where, what is the wisdom given to him? They didn't think he could have that wisdom. How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary and brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon and are not his sisters with us? And they took offense at him. Do you see what's going on? Yeah. They hear his wisdom. They've even seen some miracles and they complain. Hey, wait a minute. This is Jesus. He's nothing great. They knew him as a kid. They knew his family. He's just a carpenter like many other families. You know, like many others, William Lane in his commentary says they could not penetrate the veil of ordinariness surrounding him. In other words, Jesus is nobody special. They were offended at his commonness. He was not impressive. In John's gospel, I don't know if you recall this, but in the second, uh, in, right at the beginning, uh, Jesus meets one of his would-be disciples, Nathaniel. 
Well, right before that, Andrew has come to Nathanael and said, I think we've seen the Messiah. He's from Nazareth. And Nathanael's words about Nazareth, Nazareth, can anything good come from Nazareth? He takes offense at the idea of this podunk small town. Granton, are you kidding me? Anything from there? And um, sorry, I'm not trying to, you know. <laughs> but the idea is like, what? And now in Nazareth itself, the place that nobody thought was anything, the people of Nazareth say, Jesus, come on. They think he's not even a big fish in that small pond. He's nothing. And there's this bit of a sideswipe. I don't know if you noticed in this text. They said, is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary? Now, in a first century patriarchal society, we don't quite understand how patriarchal they were. You were never called by your mother's name. So this was probably an insinuation, because he should have been called Jesus Bar-Joseph. Jesus, the son of Joseph. But with saying son of Mary, we don't know who his father is. Can he be anything great? Can anything good happen from that? Do you get what's going on here? And this is what's so amazing. So they were offended by his ordinariness, and I think we struggle with that too. People have struggled with ordinariness all the time. God loves the ordinary. God works through families, through people, through general life. But we always want the extraordinary. We want, and we take the extraordinary, we want to make it spectacular. We want to have a wow factor. We want celebrity, we want significance, we want fame, we want glory, we want adoration. We think those are the things that God works through. We want the dramatic and the impressive and the mystical. And God chooses to be born in a manger, to be raised in a small town, and to be a peasant among peasants. Those are God's choices, and we don't like it. We want the extraordinary to be spectacular, and God takes the extraordinary glory that he had and chooses to become absolutely ordinary, and that's offensive to us. I'll give you a couple specifics of how we can be offended at the commonness and the ordinariness of the gospel. The first is the gospel itself. Okay? The gospel is that you, know, you are saved not by any extraordinary effort you do, not by anything that you do. You're not saved by your pedigree or your status or your works or your efforts or your intelligence or anything else. But you are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ and his status and his work and his efforts. There is no parallel through all the religious world. There is no other religion that has this central teaching, by the way. For other religions, it's always a process. It's always a practice. It's a journey. You through five pillars or eightfold paths or some method that only a few pious people can reach. And that kind of strokes our ego because look at what I've been doing and how much better I am than. And we say, you mean, and you might have heard this before, you mean anybody can be saved? You mean there's nothing special that I have to do? There's nothing, and we get bothered by that. 
Or you might have heard it a little more pointedly as I have at times. You mean those felons, <laughs> okay, they can get into the kingdom of God just like me. You mean I can live my life for 80 years, sacrifice and serve and give and care and, 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 tr and pray, and, and someone else can live for 80 years horribly, self-centered and greedy. And after 80 years, they can, you know, quote, repent and then get into the kingdom of God just like me. It's offensive. It's offensive to my pride. Yes, and uh, I was privileged to live for 80 years knowing my Savior and giving and serving and making a difference in this world, and they were living for 80 years without any certainty at all, in fear, and selfishly using up their lives. Why am I envious of that? Do you understand? We want the gospel to be some extraordinary, mystical, dramatic, ooh, wow, isn't that great, look at me thing. And it decenters ourselves where Jesus becomes the center, and that is offensive. We look for the extraordinary so we can feel extraordinary. God humbles us with the gospel as he is humbled to serve us and to save us. We have a humble God. The second thing that's offensive as well is that we are offended sometimes at the ordinariness of Christian experience. It's kind of like living in a small town. Uh, did anything exciting happen in Granton other than your birth? No, my hometown, you know, no, no big great shakes. I guess the big news has been, you know, this one band came out of Frankenmuth now called Greta Van Fleet. Woo! Okay, I've listened. They're good. They're kind of retro, right? Zeppelin-ish, yeah. For those Zeppelin fans, you either love them or you hate them because they're like too much, right? So here's the reality. The common ordinariness of Christian experience, most life is ordinary and common, and we want the extraordinary. And for many people, when they come into the Christian faith, if they come as an adult especially, it's a dramatic emotional experience. And once you become a Christian, often people who come in a dramatic emotional way think that's the way Christian life is always going to be like. It's going to be this one thrill spill chill after another joy ride and all these wonderful spiritual exciting experiences. And then God places you in the same job that you just had around these ordinary people that are so absolutely irritating and in a family that is humdrum. And you're going like, what's wrong with this? Is what, this is the Christian life. C.S. Lewis describes um, kind of this in a backward sort of way in his book, The Screwtape Letters. It's actually a funny, uh, it's a great book to read sometime. It's, it's a fictional account of a bureaucratic, hellish bureaucrat named Screwtape, a senior devil, speaking to an underling who's a tempter of a human being named Wormwood. And he's trying to explain to Wormwood how to tempt a Christian away from the faith. 
Okay, so you get that backwards kind of way. So he's kind of doing the op. So anyways, this is what screw tape tells him after his Wormwood's um, subject or prey becomes a Christian. He says, work hard then on the disappointment or anticlimax which is certainly coming to the patient during his first few weeks as a churchman. The enemy allows this disappointment to occur on the threshold of every human endeavor. It occurs when the boy has been enchanted in the nursery by stories from the Odyssey, buckles down to really learn, learning Greek. I don't think I ever did that, but uh, read. Did anybody read the Odyssey as a kid? Okay. Abridged version, okay. It occurs when lovers have gotten married and begin the real task of learning to live together. Can you relate to that? In every department of life, it marks the transition from dreaming aspiration to laborious doing. The enemy takes this risk because he has curious fantasy of making all these disgusting little human vermin into what he calls his free lovers and servants. Sons is the word he uses. With his inveterate love, of degrading the whole spiritual world by unnaturalizings with these two-legged animals. Desiring their freedom, he therefore refuses to carry them by their mere affections and habits to any of the goals which he sets before them. He leaves them to do it on their own, and there lies our opportunity. But also remember, there lies our danger. If once they have gotten through this initial dryness successfully, they become much less dependent on emotion, and therefore much harder to tempt. Hmm, right? I think we've seen a lot of that in the United States recently. Um, for some, COVID was a good excuse or a bad excuse or whatever, and all of a sudden worship wasn't that much fun and church isn't that exciting and it's not that rewarding, I'm not getting much out of it, and it's just so humdrum, why do I keep doing it? Underlying these two reasons, I think there's really the main reason. And that is, God, using ordinary means, puts to death our aspirational desire to kind of grab onto power. And when we're saved by not our own goodness, our own strength or ability, that puts to death a bit of my ego, right? It's a cross. When we have humdrum days and face difficulties that you never want, you think you're much better than, and oh my goodness, why am I going through this? That's a cross too. The cross is always something, by the way, that you don't want. As much as it was for Jesus, who also struggled with embracing the cross. Paul writes about this whole idea, you know, the message of the cross. Instead of the glory and greatness that we always are seeking and questing for, we get humility and service instead. And he writes it to uh, the Corinthian church that was so full of themselves. <laughs> I mean, seriously full of themselves. They quested for the spectacular. They quested for feeling fulfilled. And he has to take them to task for that. He writes, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who's wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? In the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, but pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. So God has chosen 
the foolishness, the weakness, the humanness, the commonness, the Nazareth, the carpentry of this world. That's how he is chosen. And our pride and our sinful sensibilities, we want wow. And the cross humbles us as it humiliated Jesus. The cross puts to death our egocentricity as it kills Jesus. The cross nails our hateful opposition to God's ways as Jesus is nailed for nothing but his love and service and truth. Already in Nazareth, we see it. And you might wonder, why do we have John the Baptist in this story? Kind of cutting it short here to the point. It's basically, he's the foreshadowing of what's going to happen to Jesus. Like John, Jesus will be arrested. Unjustly, like John, he will be tried. Like John, he will be killed. And like John, his followers will bury him. And already in Mark 6, Mark is pointing to where things are headed. I dare say, if you have not been offended by Jesus, you haven't met him. If you've not been offended by Jesus, you have not met him. If he hasn't contradicted your life some way, if, if all you feel is completely affirmed in all of your attitudes and desires and absolutely validated for everything that you've ever wanted to do in life, you have not met Jesus. And don't think you would have been back there in Nazareth waving some kind of a hometown flag celebrating that he came back. Don't think that you would have welcomed him, promoted him, joined with him. Even those who did, all, they betrayed him, they abandoned him, they fled, they denied him. Even his closest followers. And yet, it's through the scandal of the cross through the humiliation, through the being exposed and abandoned by God as well as by humanity, Jesus takes away all our shame and every reason we could ever want to reject him. That's why that's the reason, now the response. So how are we to live in this world with a Jesus who so easily can offend. The middle passage, I think, that we read through, where Jesus sends out the two, the 12 two by two, gives some great, simple, but profound advice. Now, it's a particular setting for the 12 disciples, but I think there's some applications that we can make. It's kind of like we see his rejection in Nazareth before. We see the death of John the Baptist, the culmination of rejection afterwards. And in between, he says, this is how to live. Go out two by two. Wherever you're greeted, you know, stay. Here's a couple of uh, things that I think we can take home. His instructions, don't go alone. You know, there's enough 
struggle with the gospel individually that if I just decide to go out into the world alone and do it on my own, uh, oh, I can read my Bible. I don't need to go to church, people say. I don't need to be. Well, I think you do. You're human. Jesus sent his disciples out to by two. He didn't send them out alone. You need to be with others to have the support, to have the encouragement when you feel like you're being rejected in this world. Don't go it alone. Live simply. You know, so Jesus tells his disciples, don't uh, take only a staff, no bread, no bag, no money, right? Wear sandals, not two tunics. I don't think you take that literalistically and say, okay, that's exactly how I'm supposed to look and how do I dress to go out and start with, that is, you know, <laughs> no. But there is an application here, and I think that's to travel light through life. You know, Christians don't get caught up in the glitz and the glamour anymore, the status, the external beauty, the accumulation of stuff in order to feel secure. We're able to be nimble. We're able to be flexible. We're able to be capable in serving and giving. So we live simply, travel light. And yeah, appreciate, even embrace the ordinary. You know, Jesus told the disciples, wherever you go, whatever small town you go to, if somebody accepts you, just stay there. And don't look for better digs, you know. Hey, well, they've got, you know. Enjoy and appreciate ordinary people. Don't get be snobs. Treat people as who they are. So don't go it alone. Live simply. Appreciate the ordinary. Going to his hometown. Just think about that. Jesus has had the renown now of the whole world. He's had success in the 10 cities called the Decapolis. He's been at Capernaum, probably Sephorus. He's been at the Sea of Galilee. He's done all these amazing things. I feel Jesus was looking forward to going to this small town of two to 300 people because he grew up there. He knew these people by name. He really knew them and he loved them, even though probably a number of them had teased him and bullied him as he was growing up, and all of them misunderstood who he was and what he was about. But he understood small town life. And he loved them particularly individually and wanting to serve them, wanting to give of himself. And when he comes into the synagogue and starts to teach, what's amazing to me is that the simplest teaching turned them off. And the text says, and he marveled because of their unbelief. Can you just feel that heartache? These are the people he has longed to, to give to and to serve and to be who he is with. And they are offended. The pain of rejection. And yet, Jesus takes no offense. He takes none from you. As many times as I've dissed him or rejected him or wanted to change him, he has not been offended at me. He is not ashamed to, me call, to call me his brother. He's not ashamed to have you his family. He longs to know he simply and profoundly he calls us to follow.
Let's pray. Lord God, um, Jesus, coming to your town, to your own, the ones you lived with for decades, the people you knew intimately, Lord, and to have them turn away from you, to be offended by you, Lord. What heartache. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that didn't stop you, that didn't thwart you, that through the offense you actually proclaimed the message of the gospel even stronger. We thank you that you, even having heard of John's beheading and death, that did not stop you from going the way of the cross. We ask, Lord, that we do not minimize your offense, we do not get in the way of your offense, we do not offend people unnecessarily in any form. Your gospel is enough, Lord. May your gospel, may who you are, live through us in such a way that we are never offended at others, that we are willing to serve and to give, and we let you be Jesus, who you are fully for them, Lord, because that is who you are. And thank you, Lord, that uh, though you are that rock that causes stumbling, Somehow, we have fallen down at your feet. Thank you for having us as your very own. Again, we lift up, Lord, as we prayed before. Ukraine, Uvalde, Colombia, many places in this world that are going through very difficult times. Lord, we lift up our nation. We lift up the need, Lord, for your kingdom in this nation to grow. We understand uh, it's one thing, you know, the government is one thing, your church is another. Teach us to live with wisdom in this world, to make the most of every opportunity that's given us. We pray, Lord, that you would bless us as a church in our ministry to uh, college students and others at Florida Gulf Coast University, that our ministry would grow in a place that could be easily offended at who you are, Jesus that you've given us an opportunity to share you. And we pray that you would empower us to do so faithfully and fully. We pray, Lord, that our neighbors who right now might have questions and doubts, that you would use us to break down those barriers that they too would see, yes, how direct you can be and who you are but may they realize, Lord, you are the only one who can be Lord, that nothing else and anything else just falls apart, cannot hold us up. Only you can take the entire weight of our lives and carry us. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for that. Again, we pray for healing, especially for Vicki and for Jeff. We pray your care upon them and for Sue. Lord, we lift up this week. We pray tomorrow, Lord, for the day of Memorial Day, that you give us sober, somber reflection, that you give us ways to honor those who have sacrificed. And Lord, now as we are finished with this portion of the service, as we are coming towards uh, time of offering and communion, we pray, Lord, we just want to give ourselves to you fully, to be open to you, to be um, uh, to be yours.
And uh, we pray, Lord, that you would uh, bless our tithes and our offerings for your kingdom's work. And that as we receive the Lord's Supper today, that you would nourish us, that you would grow us close to you, that we would commune with you and who you are. And if you need to offend us here and there and speak truth into our lives where it hurts, Lord, we know you're doing it out of love, so do that fully and completely. All this we pray, Lord Jesus, in your precious name, amen.